Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the 99%. We have the Tucson crew today. Um, I'm Jesse Vondercheck, and we have Marilyn. Hey, guys. Marilyn Chakota at mcc.coach. We have guest Brian. Hi, everybody. Brian Stover here from Accelerate 3 Coaching. And I guess you're not strictly Tucson, but for the most part, you're Tucson, right? I feel like I've been Tucson for the last couple of years and haven't migrated out anywhere uh, for the summer since COVID hit. Okay. All right. So we can claim you as a Tucsonian then. Full for time. now, anyway. No, no yeah. No matter if you want to admit it or not. <laughs> We're going to claim True. it. <laughs> yes. I mean, I do claim Tucson as my home, even when I'm not in Tucson for long periods of time. So. All right. Perfect. Good. All right. So I'm, I'm glad I was okay calling us the the Tucson gang then. Um, today, we're going to talk about a topic that has been kind of popping up a lot with some questions I've had. So I thought it'd be a good one just to um, get some, some experts on to bounce my ideas off of. And it is about workout prescriptions versus like workout execution and then kind of like what is actually going on in maybe our minds as coaches of what the most important thing or like the essence of the workout is. Uh, so to give an example, um, I've had a few athletes that have asked me some questions about cycling workouts where I've given them like a fairly specific set, getting ready for a race and say we're doing something like five by 20 minutes at race effort with 10 minutes easy between to kind of practice that race feeling and athletes have been like, Hey, I'm really struggling to find an exact piece of road where I can get this 20 minute effort in. There's like this climb I can do, but it's 26 minutes or there's this really good false flat, but it's only 18 minutes. And, you know, this athlete I was talking to was like really perplexed and like couldn't figure out exactly how to make the 20 minutes work out perfectly. And that kind of threw me for, for a loop. Cause that, you know, it wasn't, my mind wasn't like, Hey, go find the perfect piece of road. That's exactly 20 minutes long in order to do these efforts. So it's kind of when we talk a little bit about like, um, maybe the essence of the workout and how athletes can interpret or what, what the best way is for, to make that communication really clear as far as what's expected in the workout. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, I think it's such a great topic because, you know, that's the number one thing with remote coaching, right, is that we write in our voice and our minds and we have a plan that we set out for athletes. And the trickiest part is actually getting athletes to execute the session based on what it is we're truly trying to get out of them. And, and so, you know, the way we, uh, you know, set up the scenario to get that performance out of them with the terminology that we use, maybe the structure of the workout, the communication before, and just in general, our overall education on how we expect things to, to be executed as coaches, like our, our overriding philosophy, but having our athletes really understand that, know that about our programming and, uh, and who we are as coaches, that that's really, really you know, I think it, it takes time to develop that. And it really comes down to such a huge communication thing between athlete and coach. Number one, the athlete being willing to speak up and, and say, Hey, I don't really understand this. And the coaches developing a system that is really clear on their communication, but also very educational on when to, you know, allow, allow wiggle room and, you know, be able to make game day decisions and things like that. 
Yeah, I would agree with that. And I think, I think a lot of this carries over into racing as well, because if they can make good game day decisions during training, they're more likely to make a good game day decision in the middle of a race. You mean races don't work out perfectly where you just execute your exact plan and like, you don't make any decisions. That's not how it goes. Never. (laughs) You know, it's such a, it's such a tricky subject because ultimately our athletes really want to please us, right? They want to improve. That's why they've hired a coach and they usually pick someone that they really respect and they um, admire and they want to work hard for. So those two things come into play and it's, you know, when we write a workout, them wanting to execute it perfectly, that's, that's by nature of what we're trying to do, right? They pick someone that they respect. This is really important to them. They're trying to improve. They're like, Hey, I, I really want to do as best a job of this as possible. So finding that communication, that relationship between the workout and how they, how they understand it and what is, how can they execute it and keep the integrity of the session, right? Like, what are we actually trying to do here? What are we trying to train? And, and that clear understanding is just so important because ultimately they, the reason they've hired you is because they're really keen to improve. And if they think that extra two minutes out of that 18 minutes is going to make or break their improvement, then it becomes really, really important to them. Right. So, um, you know, I think it'll be good for us to share, what is our expectation and what is, what is really important? What is keeping the integrity of the session? What is actually the important things to make an athlete improve and, and have them not only feel like they, you know, succeeded, but, and, and also made us happy as coaches. Cause ultimately sometimes they're looking for that as well. Did I make my coach happy? Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, with so many athletes now training indoors where it's very easy to, Oh, I've got, whatever, four by eight minutes with this amount of recovery. It's very easy to be very precise indoors. Outside, it's not so easy. You've got uphills, downhills, headwinds, tailwinds, traffic lights. You've got cars that decide they want to pull over in front of you or whatever. Um, it's just a lot. I think as an athlete, they need to be have that expectation to be a lot more flexible outdoors versus indoors where it's a much, much easier to be rigid. And also it's much safer to be flexible outdoors uh, where you don't have to worry about safety indoors. Yeah. And the th- first thing that's probably going to pop up when, when you have that, say those exact things that those exact sentences to an athlete is, well, then am I still getting the improvements that I need from the workout? Right. So- yeah. And I think, I think it's behoove, it's on us as, as coaches to, to let people know that there's no secret workout there. There's no one workout that's going to suddenly make your threshold go up eight points versus any other workout. Because if there was, we'd all be using that exact same workout and there wouldn't be a need for the individual individualization that a coach provides. So I guess to stick with Marilyn's kind of example there, what if you're doing a workout and you can say only execute 90% of the workout or hit 90% of your power targets on the road versus where maybe you're on the trainer, you could get a hundred percent, which is better for the athlete, right? Are they getting a better workout, getting a hundred percent, but on a trainer, or if they're like, you know, have to stop or whatever, have to deal with some, some undulating terrain and they only hit 90% of the power targets on the road. What do you pick if you're the athlete or if you're the coach for the athlete? Can you pick both? I mean, if you're, if you have to choose, like, why not choose both? Because indoors to some degree doesn't replicate the, 
the the little tiny undulations, like that little two foot drop off that you ride down. And now you have a two foot uphill that you're going to ride up on the bike. Indoors doesn't really mimic that as well as outdoors. So maybe that's a, a point where you, you tell the athlete like, Hey, here's a very specific set I want to give you. And I want you to execute this indoors. And here's a set that I would like you to do. And I don't care if you execute this indoors or outdoors, or I specifically want you to execute this outdoors because I want this to be a more realistic environment that you'll see in a race because we're not all going to see Zwift in racing unless we're racing in Zwift. Yeah. And I think, I, I don't think there's really too many pieces of terrain that like, say someone, you say to someone, okay, the, the idea of this workout today, we'll use a bike, for example, is to get, you know, 60 minutes worth of broken threshold work. Now, if you're, if, if you've been educating your athlete well enough and they know it's broken, I know that there's going to be a work to, um, rest ratio that provides the training stimuli that they're after. Right. And then there isn't too much terrain where that's, you're not going to be able to hit that unless you're on a windy descent where you're actually having to like break and get around turns. I mean, even on lemon descending down lemon, I can hit threshold. You know, and yeah. now it becomes so understanding that you can work on leg speed at threshold. If you're going uphill, say we're going up, you know, um, you know, one of those false flats and understanding, okay, well, I can hit threshold at this and this is what it feels like on my bike. And, you know, if I go a little bit too hard, it starts to get above that. You know, if you're on a flat stretch of road, like nice, smooth pavement, like we have a road here, Sundario Road, what does that feel like? Oh, my bike actually moves really fast if I'm at threshold. Yeah. You better know how to do that because if you're going to race a race and you're going to be sitting at threshold, you want to be able to understand like how to handle your bike going that fast, how you need to handle, you know, your, your posture and your, your stability when you're in your time trial bars and you're climbing on a little grade uphill, like all of that is stuff. You can still execute the session. It's not like, well, I'm going down, you know, the terrain's going to change. The wind is going to change all that speeds are going to change the way things move past you the road surfaces you really want a, a lot of practice and being able to hand that if you do it a 40k tt on a road outside you're riding at threshold and you want to know how to execute that on the road not just produce watts on a trainer right yeah yeah it's more about having the athlete understand what the flavor of the workout is and being able to accomplish that versus doing the exact workout outside yeah so I guess let's talk about how you guys convey, convey that to your athletes. And like, um, we were talking a little bit earlier about like, sometimes you might program a workout into say training peak. So they get an actual file. Sometimes you might just give written directions. Um, what do you guys use to help athletes get a clear picture of kind of the goals of the session? And let's, I mean, let's keep it cycling for now, just because that's where we're at. Um, you know, I think, you know, oftentimes I'll just put a, I've got a couple athletes who want a one sentence summary of, of sort of what, what the workout is for. Um, and so then, then it's easy to do that, uh, just because that sort of lets them know like, Hey, this is more of a threshold workout, or this is a VO2, or this is an over under type of thing. Um, and then I think also, you know, one of the things I do is I have descriptions for all the different training levels, whether it's tempo or sweet spot or threshold or VO2. So, you know, I, you know, I'll tell people like, Hey, this should feel like an all out effort that you can sustain for eight minutes or 10 minutes, or this should be 
this should not feel like an Olympic distance triathlon, but it should feel a little bit harder than a half Ironman type of thing. Um, so they have some subjective feelings to put along with the uh, data in there. And then oftentimes I'll just put the Watts in there. I want them to hit. And again, like, I think people need to realize that your threshold, your critical power, your FTP, whatever you're using, just because you test it out at say 295 Watts, doesn't mean it's exactly 295 Watts. If you're three or four or five Watts over under like, who cares? Where you yeah. just, when you said who cares right there, I, I felt a lot of people just like crying inside, like three Watts under, <laughs> oh my gosh, they're, they're breaking right now. Right. Like really yeah. similar with me too, but it's like, you give big ranges, right? Like I always give a good solid range depending on the type of workout that they're doing so that there is that, I like to call it like, I like, I like using terminology, like leave yourself some wiggle room. Right. Yeah. And that allows people to make some decisions based on what's happening there. You know, if they understand the integrity of the session, they understand how to troubleshoot as they go and they have a range that they're going to work within to achieve that. And then I always say, you know, use common sense and give yourself wiggle room. And then they're usually people, you know, the people are pretty intelligent. They can figure out what's going on and, and get the workout done based on what's happening with them in real time. Right. And, um, so I think important terminology like that, knowing your athletes on how they interpret something, because remember you're writing in your voice in your head and they're reading from their perspective and their voice and their head. And so like we were talking earlier, you could say to someone, just go ride around at zone two. And that person could, you know, sit at the top of their zone two heart rate and for four hours and you look at it later and you're like, oh man, I just really wanted you to go noodle around. You know, yeah. you're like, wow, that session's going to take a lot out of you. Like somebody's zone two heart rate could be, you know, pretty, a pretty fast, hard ride for some people. And for another athlete, that could be actually exactly what you were after for that aerobic stimuli change. So knowing the athlete, knowing how they interpret the session and also knowing where they're at in their, uh, their athletic development and, and like how they actually approach sessions might have to be really almost you know, the art of coaching there is giving them each athlete their exact wording that you're going to get what you want out of them. So someone who's really fit, experienced, aerobically, extremely strong, you would say, you know, you might give them a watt cap and then say, I really want you to go noodle around. And someone else who is less experienced, maybe they're not as strong on the bike and we need to move that aerobic needle forward and they actually ride too easy. You'd say, we're going to put a, a watt four here. And I want to see you at least sitting in these RPMs and this, this heart rate and these Watts for, for this amount of time. So really depends on, on the athlete, I think, and, and knowing them well. Yeah. How about you, Jesse? Um, well, you, you spurred another question I want to ask before I forget. Um, <laughs> one of the problems I run into is when I give athletes ranges, there is only one acceptable place to be in that range. And that's like two Watts over the top of the range. Um, every time, no matter what, or, or else I get like a frowny face and it was a bad workout. And I look at it and I'm like, Oh, it's perfect. You were like on the lower end of the range, but it was hot out. So great job adjusting. But in their comments, they say things like it was a horrible workout. I couldn't hit the numbers. And, and I, and I try and say, Hey, like you, you executed this perfectly you got the exact benefit out of that. I wanted you were well within the range and 
even though I say those things, they still, I, I have trouble convincing them that they did a great job, even though they're in the bottom of the range. So I don't know if you guys have any, um, any magic words you use to help convince athletes that the bottom of the range is just as good as the, as the top of the range, or if you agree with that or not, I guess. Um, I would definitely say that, you know, you do have those athletes who are like, Oh, I'm going to be at the very top of the range or at most one watt under that. And you're like, yeah, you know what? Like, this is why you're struggling the next couple of days. And, and so maybe as a coach, you know, you kind of manipulate that and you're like, okay, I know they always ride here, but I don't want to be so shelled. So maybe I'm just going to back that off a little bit. Uh, maybe that's one way to do that. Um, but yeah, like that's, that's a tough one because a lot of people are just so internally driven to, to please, to please you. And they always think that the higher the number, the better the workout and the better the physiological adaptation to that is when it's not always the case, especially if you're working towards the upper end of the range, right? Then you could be accumulating a lot of fatigue for really no more physiological benefit than working six or seven Watts less. And you're going to feel a lot better the next couple of days. I think you said something really important there that people might not have picked up on Brian, which is uh, having the athletes understand really what, how the session works. So the fact that you said the physiology change in their body, whether they're seven Watts lower or higher in that range, they're getting what they need. And I think the more people actually understand that they're not going to be so hard on themselves to say, I have to hit that two Watts over the highest end of the range, right? They might say, well, if I, as long as I sit within here, I'm, I'm doing what I need to do to improve, right? Instead of, if I don't hit this, I'm not improving anymore, right? That's right away there. That's what their thought process is, or I'm not, I'm not succeeding. And they think you're just being nice by saying good job. But if they fully understand, actually, no, you are making that change and getting the, the work that you need to make that improvement and the adaptation, then they might be able to apply a little bit, just more basic common sense to it because they're more educated. I always feel like education is our biggest tool as coaches, especially coaching adults, you know, kids, you can kind of just tell them what to do and they go do it and they don't need to know why, but the more we can educate adult athletes, the more they're going to trust you. And because they understand why it is what they're doing. And those just might be like several conversations over a coach athlete relationship where they get to know that. Yeah. So I guess that kind of rolls into the next part of the question of like, you know, let's say you talked about like 60 minutes of threshold earlier, like how do you convey that if you gave a workout, would that be kind of like the essence of it? And like, how would you structure it with the rest? And then how much wiggle room would you give an athlete? Like, let's just make it easy. And let's say you're giving an athlete six by 10 minutes. Um, what would you say would still be acceptable, like plus or minus on either side of that, that they could, that they could deviate from and still like hit the essence of the workout and still go home and like not have accumulated too much fatigue and, and yeah, kind of be check all the boxes. Yeah. What kind of wiggle room would you give? I mean, I think if you go two minutes on either side of that, I think you're going to be fine. Um, maybe even three. And then I think this also comes down to the athlete coach communication where like, you're like, Hey, look, like if you're on a false flat uphill and it's 15 minutes long, go ahead and just do 15 minutes 
and then take your rest. And then maybe the next one, cut it down a little bit, like maybe chop off five minutes or maybe even just change your workout completely and make that four by 15 instead of six by 10 or whatever, or you do 15 and then four by 10. Um, I think that's one of the things is you get to know your athletes and the terrain that they train on consistently. You can sort of put those things in, in place. Um, but yeah, I think, I think athletes get too hung up on executing the workout exactly as written. If you're, you know, if you're in the middle of a 10 minute interval and you've got like a 3% downhill, like, like go ahead and bag that 10 minute interval, like at eight minutes when you hit the downhill. And then as soon as you get off the downhill, maybe start next interval, even if that messes up kind of your work rest ratio, I think ultimately at the end of the day, again, cause no one workout is going to make or break your racing season or make you super fit or not executing it properly is going to make you less fit than you would have been. I think it's okay to have a little bit of wiggle room there. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's on us as coaches to start writing that like plus or minus two minutes in parentheses underneath everything. Um, I hadn't really thought about that, but. Yeah. I think the two minutes is a, a fairly good, like rule of thumb. How do you say that? Rule of, rule of thumb. Yeah. I got yeah. I was like, wait a minute. How do you even say that? But I think that's a good one. I think, you know, it's where. I think common sense comes in, right? It's like if you're rolling up on a traffic light or, or all, all these things that we talk about, but if they understand, okay, with threshold, you're probably, you're going to have like half rest to work. So if suddenly you're doing a 12 minute interval instead of a 10 minute interval, make your rest six minutes, you know? And if you get a little bit more rest because you wasn't perfect with traffic and a couple lights and, you know, there was some corners of that or whatever, and you have to start it eight minutes later to get to a clear section road, that's okay. You got a little bit more rest, no problem there, right? Now, if you start all of a sudden having a 30 minute gap between your 15 minute <laughs> intervals, now you've changed the workout, right? right so it's yeah. a lot of common sense and is a lot of education from, from our point and letting people know as they make these decisions for themselves, because that's ultimately what we're trying to do is teach them how to make good decisions for themselves so that when they race, they can make good educated decisions. And, and then as they grow as an athlete, they just get better and better at that. And, um, and so, yeah, if they know, okay, well, it's a threshold session, I'm trying to get 60 minutes worth of work and I've got some wiggle room within the range and I've got, you know, sort of two minutes on either side. And if the rest starts to get greater, like way greater than the actual work, it's, it's probably not relevant anymore. So, you know, if they keep that rest within half or slightly under or over there, and, and then on the other side, if they do a 15 minute or 10 minute interval and they only rest two minutes, it's likely that that next rep is not going to hit threshold. They've got, haven't gotten enough rest, right? So if they understand that work to rest ratio, they're going to be able to like make a lot of game day decisions for themselves that they can come home and say, well, I hit the integrity of session of what I was meant to get today and, and feel good about it and know that they're, like you say, it's accumulation of workouts that is going to see them improve over time. The other thing I see people do is when you give them those ranges is they try and hit the top end of that range right in the first, like say it's an eight minute interval. They try and hit that top end range at like the first 20 seconds. It's like just also creating a culture within your athletes that they can, you know, they can be, they can relax a little bit. Like you want to be smart and you want to be strong and you want to be aggressive as far as your improvement, but also there's an element of just kind of being smart over the long haul, right? Like a full understanding that 
in all distant, long distance racing and endurance racing, patience is the number one thing you can learn, whether you're training, whether you're racing, whether you're executing an interval, if you understand patience, you're going to be a good endurance athlete. So that's like an opportunity for them to learn that. And if you can create that kind of culture within your athletes, it will also help them make those decisions for themselves. Yeah. My, um, my favorite is the, the lull at like, let's say we're doing 10 minutes, that lull from like six minutes, six to eight. And then that VO two max lasts two minutes to get the average power right in the right <laughs> spot. That's I, I love when the graph looks like that. Um, yeah. The big U yeah. shape graph, <laughs> like not, not the intent there. Yeah. I like to, I like to think about having like, you know, whatever instantaneous power or 10 seconds smoothing some variation between there you're looking at be as close to what you're trying to do and not trying to bring that average up by, by big swings. Um, yeah. And I think a lot of athletes just don't realize if they crush that first 20 seconds, it just makes the rest of the interval that much harder. That's, that's like, a different, ease, that's, that's a hard start into different. it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I was like coming out hot, man. You <laughs> back it off. Right there. Uh, settle in a bit. Yeah. So it's um, I think little things like that make a big difference. You know, the one thing I also like technology is such a great thing and we get so much information from it, but it does create a, a few of these issues that I think it just takes like we keep repeating a lot of uh, communication and um, yeah I just think that you know the sometimes also athletes going out there without their computers will also help them detach a little bit right where they're not so if you've got an athlete that just can't let go of their Garmin beeps they got to go that kind of stuff and and maybe you prescribe some workouts where they do the workouts and they just have to remember it by mind and go out and execute it off a stopwatch and they and you take a little bit of that dependency on gadgets away from them and and help them help them with that a little bit so that could be an art part of your coaching with that athlete as well yeah i think it'd be, be behoove a lot of athletes to use a little bit less technology and a little bit more, Hey, how am I feeling about this workout? How am I feeling during this workout and sort of get in touch with that PRE and those sensations of, Hey, this is really hard, or this isn't very hard. I think a lot of people just rely too much on their power meter to tell them what to do and when to do it. And that sort of takes away from that decision-making that they need to do well in racing, especially long course racing. You know where else I see people get hung up is that afterwards, when they look at the workout, a lot of them are looking at the workouts on their phone and the data on their phone, or they just look at like normalized power. And, and I, I think that that can really mess athletes up as well. Yeah. They go back and they review their own workout. Right. And they're like, oh, I failed. And, and, and they're looking at, they did intervals and they had rest in between the intervals and all this stuff. And then they just look at like the normalized power on their phone. Or they, um, you know, don't actually look at the actual file on a desktop and break it up and like right. scroll over the actual interval and see like the power changes, the cadence changes, the heart rate rise, the recovery heart rate in between, like what p speeds they were going. They just look at like a smoothed out snapshot on their phone and make an entire judgment call on their entire progression as an athlete based on that. And I'm like, and I, I, I have so many conversations with athletes on that. And they're, and I'm like, I don't even look at your files on a phone ever. No. ever. Like I would never look at a file on a phone. Why would you do that? Like pull it up, 
break it up, scroll across it, look at the whole workout, and then you're going to have an idea of what was really, and then compare it to what was happening in real time, you know? So that's a huge part of it as well. I wanted to circle back quick to the, the six by 10 versus four by 15. Um, but I agree with everything you said, Marilyn. Um, I just, again, wanted to not forget this is that I, I think it is very important. Like you were saying to know that the specific athlete and where they're at in their progression, because, you know, there's some athletes that if six by 10 is like a stretch and they're like, ah, oh, this road is a little bit longer. I want to do the, the four by 15. And they like, let's say they're listening to this and they go out and try that, then they could be totally blown by adding on an extra five minutes. So yeah. I, th I think that's uh, but, but again, like for other athletes, maybe they can, they could flip flop those around and that's totally fine just by adding in a little bit extra recovery. Yeah. I think that's one of those things where you have to know your, know your athlete and structure your in structure your instructions to that athlete right. and not to athletes in general. Right. And I also think it does kind of depend on the intensity. Like we're talking about threshold here specifically. Right. But if you're doing like say Ironman pace work and you're supposed to do 30 minutes and the climb is like 55 minutes, you, you might be able to just roll that whole thing. And that's going to be okay. Cause the intensity is so much lower. So like the duration and intensity kind of bait, like they, there's a, a relationship there where you get yeah. a little more wiggle room, maybe a little less. Like you wouldn't just be like, Oh, you were trying to do a 30 minute interval. You still have that same plus two minutes, right? You right. A little more. Yeah. I think as the intensity is lower, your the fudge factor there can be, can be higher. And the higher the intensity goes, especially as you start to get near the top of threshold and are over it, the, the, the smaller that, that margin of error becomes. And in some cases, much, much, much smaller. Yes. Yeah. That if you're doing two minuteers, you probably can't add two minutes onto that. That would be, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> that'd be a death march pretty fast. It is too. One, One thing you can notice as, uh, as coaches with your athletes, as you get to know them is, and as athletes themselves figure this stuff out is that if cumulatively over the weeks, they find that they're either one, not making improvements because they're not actually hitting the targets or two, they're so wrecked after say three weeks or six weeks of training. It's there's chances that somewhere in those descriptions of the workouts, they're executing them incorrectly. And most, most of the time it's people going too hard on their easy stuff or going to yes. eat, whether it be the recoveries or like the aerobic rides or whatever. And you find that rides, runs, whatever, you know, it's, you find that if you really look over a cumulative period of time, they can kind of get away with that for maybe one week, two weeks. It's even trickier if an athlete's really experienced and they're really fit and they tend to actually their heart rate runs really low because they've been at it for a long time and they're aerobically extremely fit. And if you're not watching that, you know, what they're doing in their aerobic sessions and their easy sessions, and they're not easy enough. And then they're also able to hit their hard sessions for like one or two weeks or even three, or maybe even for an eight week block, they'll get away with it. And then all of a sudden they'll hit a wall they'll be like, what happened? And so those are like really fine tooth things that you got to be watching and having those conversations with your experienced athletes to make sure that they are executing those correctly. So they're not just, you know, eight weeks down the road, they're like, man, I'm cooked. And, yeah, and I think that's something valuable. You said something very valuable that most, most athletes should really take to heart. And that is make your easy sessions easy. I mean, it's almost 
hard to go too easy in your easy sessions, but it's really easy to go too hard in your easy sessions. I don't know. I think I get in trouble sometimes for going too easy in my easy sessions, but, uh, <laughs> but for most people, it's probably not an issue. That's when you invite me to come along and you're like, this will keep it easy. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that is also another good time to, you guys are talking about like going on field, not having gadgets, like, you know, people have like paces and speeds. They think they should go on their easy rides. And I think that that can really be like a trap where like, oh, this is going to go up on Strava. So like, I can't average under 18 miles an hour on my TT bike. So I better like get arrow on the river path and, and make this like make this file look good, even though it's supposed to be easy. So yeah, it's a good time to kind of unplug on that and, uh, and actually just ride what feels easy. You know what, actually you just said there that, um, sparked something in my head with the easy and understanding the integrity of the workout. So the river path is a great example for that. If I, if I said to someone hits like, say their zone two Watts or a hundred, you know, smaller female, 130 Watts to 150 Watts, you'd have to be like kind of trucking on the river path yeah. to hold that as like, if they were like, Oh, I want my normalized power to be 150 at the end. And they're, let's say they're like 115 pound female and they're, they would have to really be boogieing along. Or I actually have an athlete who lives in Dubai. And so this is like, I really understand your athletes. And the roads there are dead flat and very smooth and fast. And so it's almost like the importance of me expressing how easy they have to go on that stuff because they just all end up wanting to be like in their aero bars and hammering down this flat stretch of road to, to get it in an aerobic zone. And then they're, you know, it's a hundred degrees or 105 and then they're cooked from their, from their easy ride. And you're like, Okay, well, that's a that's a conversation we need to have. Yeah. Um. So, another question that I have is is when you have people that you're training with, and I think this goes along with kind of like, let's say you guys have similar workouts. When is it okay to like, um, I guess how much wiggle room did you give, do you give your athletes to kind of do someone else's workout? or to, to kind of manipulate the workout to make it so that they can train with people? Like, how do you rate that as far as, is it important or is it more important that they kind of hit hundred percent of the workout? Is it okay? Would you rather them training alone and never training with people? I think I'd rather have them manip <clears throat> manipulate things and train with people sometimes. I mean, obviously every once in a while, like, Hey, here's a workout. I really want you to go hit, but like years and years ago, I coached a long course pro and from the UK and he spent the summer with a bunch of Aussie ITU pros and uh, their coach and I sat down and sort of like, Hey, like here's a day for higher intensity. Here's a day for longer, lower intensity stuff. And we sort of had, I think it was like VO2 Tuesdays or tempo Tuesdays or something like that. And then like, and we both, both the other coach and I just knew like, on this day, we would just sort of put these intervals in. And then if there was like a, a must do session, then I would just put like, you need to do this session in, in the notes on the session. Otherwise the, the, all the athletes would just sort of get together and they would just hash it out amongst themselves. And I think, I think that's like, as long as everybody's sticking to the flavor of the workout, like, Hey, this is a VO two max workout. You've got six by four, you've got five by five, you've got four by six, whatever, like sort it out amongst yourselves, do the workout together. And 
at the end of the day, again, there's no one workout that's going to make you invincible and beat everybody else. And it's better to do the workout and then uh, get some sort of workout done versus try to execute it exactly and like have all these different people doing different things and whatever, people getting pissed off or whatever. Like, no, just sort of sit down as a group, figure it out, go do it and come back and let us know what you did. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. It's like, you know, if someone's got eight minutes versus I've got six minutes and I've got, no, I've got four minutes. So, you know, obviously it depends if you're all relatively at the same level. And like you said, the flavor of the workout is the same, whether you're a couple minutes on either side to break up the group to say, no, we're not going to do this together. Or I have to go train on my own. It's probably better. The motivation from the group for a hard session, the benefits are likely higher than if you go, you know, your two minutes difference completely by yourself. And saying that, I think there does need to be a balance. I mean, at the end of the day, triathlon is a solo sport. And so it's good to train with people and it's good to use them as motivation. It's good to adapt your training around making that happen with other people. But there is also times that athletes need to be comfortable executing really hard sessions by themselves because triathlon is a solo sport. And if you don't ever learn how to get that internal motivation to execute that and what that feels like, then you might struggle a little when it comes race day. You know, I've seen that before where someone does all of their hard intervals sitting on somebody's wheel who's a little bit faster than them. And they're like, oh, they've made me a lot stronger because we do the same workout together and I'm always sitting on their wheel. However, the person who's sitting on the wheel has a false sense of how fast they can actually execute that workout based on their power numbers. So their power might be in range and the file looks perfect and it was fun and it was motivating. They get a false sense of how fast they can ride for that effort. And then when the wheel's not there in a race and their time's way slower, they're confused to why they went that slow. So making sure that that is part of, you know, just the education piece when people are choosing training partners and that kind of thing. Marilyn, were you talking to me when you were saying that? Cause I felt like you're I feel very seen right now. <laughs> no, it's a mistake I made at one point. I was always sitting on guys' wheels that were really fast. And my power numbers were like a, like really high when I'd be doing hard sessions. And I got used to what it felt like almost to be like motor pace for all my hard sessions. And then when I went to do them on my own or in a race, I was like, the sensations, the speed, the cadence, everything was different. And I started kind of blowing myself up a little bit on the bike. And I had to correct that and change it where like, okay, some of my hard intervals, we might've still trained together, but I went ahead, got a head start, and then they had to catch me. And then we finished at the same time so that I got a, uh, a good understanding of executing a hard rep on my own and not just sitting on a wheel as well. I'd kind of lost that, lost touch with that. So I think it's, I, I personally did it. So it's, it's easy to do, especially as a female. Cause if you're training with guys that are always stronger than you, you're always going to slot in on their wheel, you know? And I think if you're doing that, I don't know, Jesse. (laughs) (laughs) And and I think it's one thing, like, let's say you are going to go out with another athlete and you both have sets that you want to do. Well, ride the first, whatever hour, or however long you're going to warm up together, do your sets and then ride the rest of the race, ride the rest of the ride together. You can do your own individual sets, but just, you know, have some company before and afterwards, if you want, that's a solution as well for athletes. Yep. Yeah, totally. I think 
I agree with everything you guys are saying. I think, again, it comes back to making sure you're like finding out what the actual goal of the workouts are and finding out how you can execute that. And if you can change a workout by a couple of minutes to stay within range of a buddy or like with someone, then I think that's great. And I do think you can save a lot of mental energy for racing by doing a lot of your hard sessions with people and, and not have it like be that just kind of giant solo effort all the time. But I also agree that once in a while you do need to practice what that feels like, uh, you know, spend a little bit of mental energy and training so that you have that experience so that you're ready to do that in racing as well. It's a little riskier with running, right? If you're running with people faster than you during intervals, you want to make sure that that's really the right setup for you. I know me personally, I could never do any run hard run training with people because I'd always get injured. I would always just go just like a little bit too hard trying to keep up. And when there's, I think when it's a safe environment, it's okay to incorporate that when it's a, maybe an environment that there's a bit of risk, then that might be a time you tell people, Hey, this is not the time or place for that. Uh, Marilyn, it's easy. You just be the fastest one in the group then you're fine. See, there you go. <laughs> that's an option too. <laughs> When you're Jesse, that's not, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's not the case, uh, but, but no, yeah, it is. That is another thing where you have to kind of know your limits and stay within yourself. And, and you can definitely, um, yeah, groups, groups of guys tend to be the worst at this of trying to push the pace on each other. And all of a sudden you're running way faster than you're supposed to be. And then people are like falling off the back and getting injured. And yeah, it's, it can be bad. Guys aren't the smartest training together sometimes. Yeah. And I think that that's on the athlete as well, to some degree though, having that, that mental strength to be like, you know what, this is faster than I need to run today, or I want to run today, you know, based upon what my coaches told me and what I've got scheduled for the rest of the week. So you guys do you, and I'm going to go do me. Yeah. And I think that is a good a good place to do what you were talking about earlier, Brian, where you like have some people to do the warm up with, and then say you do your tempo loop or you do your repeats or whatever. And then everybody gets back together for the cool down where you can all say, Hey, like, you know, I want to run this pace and you guys can all go do it. And you can be there to support each other. And especially if you're on a track where you can just like kind of regroup quite regularly, but yeah, you don't, you're not going to have the same goals of all your training partners. And so, you know, you want to make sure you're doing yeah, what you need to do and not what someone else needs to do. I think it all really, the whole conversation circles back to the more education people have on what it is that they're trying to get out of the session, the better they're going to do. Their be be their better decisions they're going to make for themselves, the better execution they're going to be able to do, the more they're going to be able to adapt on the fly, the more they're going to be able to decide whether they should stay inside or outside. And that's just a, a continuation of, of you know, doing it well, making mistakes, asking questions, uh, building the relationship between coach and athlete, and, and just cumul accumulation of time, right? And, and the better, the more you do, the better you get at it, make a few mistakes, blow up a few times, those kinds of things, have a few successes, have a few hard conversations, all of that. And then at, at the end of the day, you get to a point where you don't really make too many mistakes, you know, over the long term. And too many, still some. <laughs> still some. Well, and I yeah. think making mistakes for an athlete is part of that growth process as well. You have to make some mistakes. Otherwise, I think you're going to end up in a point where you're never afraid to really, in a race, take that little bit of risk that sometimes you really need that will make you 
go from successful to really successful in that race. But if you're always choosing bad choices, then you're never going to get to that point in the race where you can even have success. <laughs> right. Very, very true words. <laughs> um, so yeah, this conversation went from a workout prescription conversation to basically 100% about communication. I like it. I like, <laughs> I like that turn. It is though. You know what else is that like, so I always say, Matt, there's so many words for the same workout. Right. Like, and especially now with the internet, there's so much out there. And so, you know, it can be the same thing can be described like a hundred different ways. So it really is understanding like your athletes got to understand what it is that we're asking of them. And then they've got to have the knowledge on how to execute that. And that's just like, it's a communication thing, terminology, education, um, being, and they're going to read 50 other things. So I like to, instead of just using one, one word, I like to use all of them. So they become familiar <laughs> with all of them. And then they know how to make the decision based on what they're reading. It's like, it all means the same thing. You know, you can use that. This, here's 20 words that describe, this is what you're trying to get. And the more they know that, then they're able to still do their workout the way they need to. Awesome. Well, I, personally learned a lot. So I appreciate it. Thank you. Um, and yeah, I, I feel like if I kept asking questions, you guys could talk about this forever, but I'm going to try and keep this shorter than forever. So, um, I do appreciate you guys spending some time with me and, and talking through kind of how you communicate your workouts to athletes. And, um, hopefully athletes that are listening can kind of learn a lot about maybe what's going on in their coach's head and, and ideally, maybe they'll ask a few more questions to help fill in that communication gap, right? Because I feel like we might think we're doing a really clear job communicating something, but maybe them making sure so that the onus can be on both parties as far as like a really great understanding of the essence of the workout that we're trying to convey, no matter how we're giving it out there. But, um, but yeah, I, I really appreciate you guys spending the hour with me. Um, Thanks so much, guys. That was really fun. This was fun. Yeah, I enjoyed it. <laughs> And yeah, Brian, great to have you back. Hopefully you get healthy soon. And yeah, let's, uh, let's get you on again so we can talk again soon, but sounds good, Jesse. Thanks. And I'll put a link, uh, for Brian's website. So if you guys want to reach out to him, you can just check the, uh, the podcast show notes. All right. Thank Thanks, you guys. Steve. All right. Thanks guys.